This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's Board and the Federation of State Humanities Councils in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. The Campfires Initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From an early age, Margaret Fuller dazzled 19th century New England's intelligent elite. Her famous conversations changed women's sense of how they would think and live. Her editorship of The Dial shaped American romanticism. In her new, uh, in her rather Pulitzer Prize winning uh, biography, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life, which is uh, now out in paperback, Megan Marshall tells the story of how Fuller, tired of Boston, accepted Horace Greeley's offer to be the New York Tribune's front page columnist, moved and unleashed a crusading concern for the urban poor and plight of prostitutes and a hunger for passionate experience. In Italy, as a foreign correspondent, Fuller took a secret lover a handsome young officer of the Roman Civic Guard. She wrote dispatches on the brutal 1849 siege of Rome, gave birth to a son, and when all three died in a shipwreck off Fire Island shortly after Fuller's 40th birthday, the sense and passion of her life's work were eclipsed by tragedy and scandal. Until now. Uh, uh, Margaret Fuller uh, was a trailblazer. She was Henry David Thoreau's first editor, Ralph Waldo Emerson's close friend, first female war correspondent, and a tragic heroine. Megan Marshall is the author of the Peabody Sisters, previously which won the Francis Parkman Prize, Mark Linton History Prize, Massachusetts Book Award in nonfiction, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in biography and memoir. Her essays and reviews have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times Book Review, Atlantic, and Slate. She's the recipient of Guggenheim and NEH fellowships and teaches narrative nonfiction and art of archival research in the MFA program at Emerson College. Megan Marshall, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Tom, for having me. Uh, fascinating life, Margaret Fuller. Um, a New American Life is the subtitle. Why, why that subtitle? Well, um, you know, uh, Margaret Fuller was born in 1810, uh, sort of into this generation that was trying to define what America was going to be, what American letters would be. She was very interested in, in uh, could there be an American literature that was, uh, that was new? But she also uh, was kind of trying to blaze a new life for women. How could women, uh, you know, what should women do was the question she asked in her conversation. So practically everything she did that we now remember her for was a first. She was the first woman allowed to uh, study and research and write in the Harvard Library where she went among all these male students. Um, she was the first uh, woman foreign correspondent from America, as we've said, um, she did so much that was so new, and ironically, it took her back to the old world in order to do that. It was uh, I found that quite fascinating. So in a way, that was part of her new life, journeying back to Europe in a way that we see you know, American writers doing in the years after that. Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry James, um, Hemingway. Uh, this was a new path for Americans, too, to, to in, in fact, return uh, to the 
old world and to uh, find a freedom there. I want to pick up, uh, there's so much in her life, of course. I want to bring it forward to, to begin with to today. Um, mm. you, you write recently in The New Yorker um, that uh, four years from now, in 2020, we'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. And you write further, a backward glance might have saved us the steep disappointment of Hillary Clinton's 2016 loss. African-American men won the vote in 1870. We had our first male black president in 138 years later. By that logic, we'll have to wait till 2060 for a woman to shatter the uh, the highest and hardest glass ceilings, Hillary Clinton has, uh, has said. Uh, you go on to say that um, the um, Clinton is best seen not as heir of America's turn of century, uh, 20th century suffragists, but uh, back to Margaret Fuller. Yes, you know, um, we think a lot about the women of the 19th century uh, who were uh, seeking reforms kind of solely in terms of uh, getting the vote. We, we needed to get the vote, and when that was done, all would be well. But Margaret Fuller, who was writing a little bit earlier than the, than the suffragists of the, uh, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton sort, who actually were influenced by Fuller, um, she saw a kind of broader field of reform that was required. So she wrote things like, this is her great book, Woman in the 19th Century, which was a big uh, seller both in the U.S. and, and um, in England um, in 1845. She says, we would have every arbitrary barrier thrown down. We would have every path laid open to woman as freely as to man. So I think she saw the way that women would never be fully accepted until they were accepted in, in every workplace. In her time, she said, let them be sea captains, if you will. I think she would now have said, let them be presidents. And, of course, we are going to have to wait a bit longer for that, and we don't want just uh, any woman to be president. We want a woman who cares about women's issues. Um, it's it's sad for me the way that election turned out, but I think Margaret Fuller probably wouldn't have been surprised. She saw... Uh, you know, just how how hard it was. The other thing, though, that I think is very relevant to our time is um, uh, Margaret Fuller's insights about gender. She didn't use that term at the time, but she saw uh, that each of us are, are kind of uh, fluid beings. She said male and female represent what we think of as two sides of the great radical dualism, but in fact, they're perpetually passing into one another. There's no holy masculine man, no purely feminine woman. And I think this uh, really was an insight, again, not something that the suffragists were particularly interested in uh, um, in their drive to get the vote, but it's something that's helpful now, helpful for us to understand ourselves in the ways um, that, you know, gender has such an enormous effect on the way we go through our daily lives. Yeah, yeah the, the great radical dualism. Uh, no yeah. holy masculine man, no purely feminine woman. Uh, and yet that a lot of progress, I think, but uh, still mm-hmm. still an ideal, right? And not yeah. not achieved. No, no, it's there's still a great deal of resistance and and um you know, we hope there will not be setbacks. Um we're just going to have to find out. Uh, and, and this campaign highlighted some of these things, right? Uh, Hillary Very Clinton, as, as you write in The New Yorker, was attacked for being too weak, too ill, too detail-oriented. And when she dared poke fun at her accuser, too nasty. Yes, yeah. You know, this was something that Margaret Fuller struggled with. Um, and, of course, all many, certainly, I don't, can't quite say all, I guess, but women do, you know, how to assert themselves. 
um, she struggled in a way. Uh, she, she had um, been quite an intellectual prodigy, um, homeschooled by her father, who was determined on, on uh, you know, educating her as if she were a boy. And she was a, a brilliant um, scholar. She could uh, was, you know, studying Latin at age seven and uh, reading the Aeneid at age nine and writing wonderful essays, some of which are still preserved that I've been able to read. Anyway, so she was raised to think that she had, in her father's view, the mind of a boy. But suddenly she became a girl, a teenager, a woman, and what was he to do about this? This, uh, He sent her off to a a girl's school where... um, you know, intellectuality wasn't valued as much. And this led her to, I think, these kinds of perceptions about male and female. How different really are they? Uh, should they be perceived as different? Um, and so, you know, when we saw these debates between uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, it, you know, it was so um, discouraging, I think, to have the, the um, you know, to have Hillary have to defend herself in the way that she did, and to have Trump, you know, make these kind of nasty remarks, he call it, calling her nasty, but to me a nasty remark, only after just being kind of poked fun at, again, you know, it's been said he doesn't seem to be able to take jokes at his own expense, um, and this is something, you know, not unfamiliar in certain kinds of men who feel the need to dominate simply by asserting their presence, um, Oh. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think, you know, I felt we were watching a kind of battle of the sexes as if it was Bobby Riggs versus Billie Jean King back in the in the days of, of uh, that famous tennis match when Bobby Riggs had said, you know, no woman could beat any, you know, male tennis player. And, and we had to see it, you know, played out in front of us. And, of course, that turned out better mm-hmm. than the selection did. Yeah, that was... And, a, and Oh yeah, of course. Uh, uh, she she did win win that one, but that had a kind of the element of a of a circus. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and and I wish that you know it didn't have to be the case now, but I think um, you know it, it's going to take a while before we can just see these candidates as people rather than you know a woman. And I I, I do think that um, you know certainly polls have said as recently as two thousand eight that you know majority of Americans. Didn't, couldn't envision a woman as a president. So, you know, Hillary had a lot to um, to battle with there. Um, and again, you know, maybe it will just take that much longer uh, before we can accept this. Uh, still, um, you know, we have so many brilliant women in politics and in public life, and I, I you know, have a great deal of hope um, for that. And, you know, it's interesting to think back about the... Um, the Pulitzers themselves. When I uh, my book received that award in 2014, I sort of counted up and saw that you know we were nearly at the centennial, 100 years of giving out the award, and only 10 women writers had received this award in biography, and and only five of those books were about women subjects. So um, I I was very encouraged. You know, of course I was very happy to receive the prize, but I was encouraged that a woman subject, um, and particularly Margaret Fuller, who had once been perhaps the most famous American woman uh, in her day, um, but forgotten now, I was very pleased to see that she was someone that could be considered an American heroine, which I think is 
uh, or or hero, just a protagonist <laughs> of American life, worthy of a prize. Because I think, in a certain way, these prizes in biography are given as much to the subject as they are given to the writer. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, let's uh, jump into Margaret Fuller's life beginning uh, early uh, years. You mentioned that her father uh, poured a lot of learning into his daughter. That's uh, unusual for the times, I'm, I'm imagining. And uh, Margaret Fuller should have been part, could have been, uh, if things had been different, part of the outstanding Harvard class of 1829, probably would have been at head of the class. Um, let's uh, start there and, and continue following this break. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Parents forget. High blood pressure, poor sleep, and medicine can slow a brain down. Purpose in life, social networks, stimulating activities, these help protect aging brains. Rather than worry about memory lapse, direct your energy toward mental exercises, physical activity, and maintaining a social life. Ask your parents how they spend their time and encourage change. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Becoming a sustaining member of Utah Public Radio is easy, and it makes a big difference. It really only takes a few minutes, but the impact of your support is what helps bring local and national news into your homes and cars. As listeners and members of UPR, your role is a vital part of our operation. You make it happen. Help us grow this holiday season by joining UPR today for Giving Tuesday and making your donation a sustaining one at upr.org. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are recounting the fascinating life of Margaret Fuller. Uh, Margaret Fuller was a trailblazer. She was Thoreau's first editor, Emerson's close friend. She was the first female war correspondent and a tragic heroine. Megan Marshall is author of a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography called Margaret Muller, Margaret Fuller, rather, A New American Life. And uh, Megan Marshall joins us for the program uh, today. Let's uh, pick up a thread with early life. So uh, Margaret Fuller grew up near Cambridge. Her father was a lawyer, a U.S. congressman, been a serious scholar at uh, Harvard, and uh, he decided to Fill her with learning. She was uh, she was into Latin and Greek at an early age. Yes, yeah. She was the first child of what would be ultimately six, um, and then she had a, a little sister born after her who died uh, as an infant, and then there were brothers came along. But for quite a while, she was really the only child that her father could focus on or had the chance to focus on in his educational theories. And she just was an apt learner, an avid learner, a kind of uh, intellectual prodigy everyone recognized early on. And that gave her really a kind of 
strong sense of power, I think, um, that she could uh, kind of hold her own in a way, even with her father. Uh, she was always trying to measure up to his standards, and she did that repeatedly. Um, and then, you know, she took a kind of, uh, she took these um, uh, mythological heroes and heroines um, and, uh, um, you know, the great epic heroes as models. And by age 15, even though, as I said before, she was kind of in a struggle with her father about what was proper now for a, a young lady to do, uh, she still retained this ambition in a very impressive way. She wrote to one of her school teachers, I am determined on distinction. And, you know, that was at age 15 and really quite unusual, not just for a girl, but for anyone at that time. Ambition was kind of frowned upon. Uh, you shouldn't make it, make it public if you had ambition. But um, she wasn't going to hide that and just had this very strong conviction that she uh, she could make a difference in the world. Um, her uh, her um, Oliver Wendell, she knew everybody, as you write in the book. She, yes. you know, uh, Thoreau, Emerson, uh, the, the list goes on. When she gets to Europe, uh, George Sand. I, I want to talk about George Sand as we go along. Um, but uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes lived nearby. He was of a similar age. And apparently mm-hmm. when he found her to be intellectually superior, I think that's what he decided, he found mm-hmm. that to be a crushing discovery. Yes, yeah, he thought of himself as the most brilliant uh, little boy in the school. Um, she'd finally been allowed at age 10, I think it was, to go to this school in the neighborhood, uh, which was uh, a rare school that had both girls and boys in it, although they sat at opposite sides of the room. Um, but he, he said, you know, who is this Margaret Fuller? She thinks she's so great. And he managed to get hold of one of the essays that she'd written, and, and it uh, had some words in it he didn't even recognize. And he thought, oh, you know, curses. Um, I've been foiled by this, this girl. Um, and so, you know, as many um, sort of threatened males would do, even that age, he began to think of her as uh, sort of, you know, she had an she had a curvature of the spine. Maybe she was an awkward person. Maybe she uh, squinted her eyes because she was nearsighted. Um, all these kinds of um, denigrating comments about her appearance began to surface, along with this sense that she was superior in intelligence. And remarkably, because her father, who was a lawyer, had trained her to kind of um, uh, dispute with him, uh, she. she she was always quite well known for her conversation, for her argument that she could really uh, stand up to anyone, and um, she enjoyed it sort of like a verbal sword play. She described it, uh, and this was completely unexpected in in uh, girls, um, let alone women. She, but she never gave it up. <laughs> she, she certainly had a fire uh, to her. Uh, she she wrote mm-hmm. that uh, in her teenage years, she made up her mind to be bright and ugly. Uh, mm. She was she was trying to come to terms with you know later on she she grew out of her of her teen you know some of the teen problems. Um, mm-hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about her personality. Yeah, well, um, she was in a certain way a loner, but she also um, because she spent so much time reading and on her own, and you know if if the other girls or even boys found her um, dominating, she she would say, oh, "Well, I don't mind that. I'll keep my own company." But uh, as she got older, she was able to kind of hold sway, even uh, impressing the older girls and and competing with them. Um, There was a a very sad moment when she had a dancing party, invited friends, and and only nine out of the 50 or so she invited came. But, but, you know, she soldiered on and and tried to decide that, uh, you know, 
that sort of thing didn't matter. The quotation you read, um, you know, uh, symbolized that. It wasn't that she was aiming to be ugly, but she was going to just not let it bother her if people found fault with her appearance. She was a little bit overweight. She was, you know, hadn't uh, gotten to be as tall as she thought she would be. She had acne for a while. All these things that so many of us experience, you know, um, and it's very touching to to read about someone of the 19th century uh, struggling through this too, and that's one of the great things that I found in writing about her. She's, you know, all of her letters and her journal entries just feel so contemporary. I, I could have been reading about someone growing up, um, you know, 10 years ago instead of uh, 150 years ago. Yeah, she does feel ahead of her time. Uh, mm. She she writes that she she has to learn to, quote, be my own priest, pu- pupil, parent, child, husband, and wife. Yes. And, and you write, uh, or you put her uh, early in the book, a quotation from her, uh, this is Margaret Fuller, where I make an impression it must be by being most myself. Yes, yes. I love that. Um, it, it's really uh, a line we could put on our T-shirts, I think. Um, and that, I think, was also unusual for a woman at that time who, you know, as she wrote uh, in Woman in the 19th Century, so many women felt they needed to shape themselves in order to be attractive to men. Uh, she was very sad that at the time, and, and it's certainly been true until very recently, that, that marriage was the one decision that, women made that would kind of define who they were and then of course what if you know what if the husband dies what if tragedy should strike and what if you never do marry you know it does that mean women are worthless um so i think that she um very much was um someone who was an observer even as she could you know uh make use of those observations, uh, deliver them to people <laughs> by way of her conversation initially and then ultimately by her writing. You mentioned a T-shirt. That makes me think. I, I was very interested mm. to, to read your review of uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's uh, uh, book on, mm. based on her you know, saying that went viral, um, well-behaved women seldom make history. And it was very interesting to see that through your eyes, you know, being biographer of uh, Margaret uh, Fuller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. What, what, how, how was she seen at, at the time, Margaret Fuller? Yeah, well, it's interesting. She tried to tread a very fine line, which I think uh, ultimately is why she felt she had to leave New England. Um, she wanted to be seen uh, as a, you know, as, as a kind of... Um, you know, an elegant woman. She, after this kind of awkward adolescence, she always dressed well. She was very proud of her appearance. Um, but what she was going to say was never what you thought a woman was going to say. And what she did was rarely what you thought a woman would do. So uh, she ultimately found that by um, leaving New England for New York and, and, and Europe, she, she gained greater acceptance um, in, a, in a place where uh, women of power uh, had, um, you know, had often held sway. I mean, in England, there were queens. Um, and in uh, in Europe, there was nobility, and women could do things. Um, and not that, Elizabeth, that Margaret Fuller, you know, aspired to be uh, of the nobility, but I think she could um, play in those, in that arena much more successfully. 
If you just joined us, we're talking about uh, the extraordinary life of Margaret Fuller. Subtitle is A New American Life, um, and this is a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, biography. Megan Marshall is the author, and uh, she has joined us uh, for the hour. Uh, you can join us as well if you'd like at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. As I mentioned before the break, uh, Fuller, if uh, women had been allowed in Harvard, should have been part of the uh, Harvard class of 1829, famous class. Many, many famous people came out of that class. Um, of course, not allowed to, to go. Um, I wonder, that's a transition to, to this question. Tell me yeah. about the uh, the conversations. seems like Margaret Fuller wanted to, she, she recognized the need of uh, women for higher education. Yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't mean to dismiss the impact of her years in New England, but uh, and uh, the conversations were a big part of that. She had, um, you know, well, she grew up uh, in a fairly prosperous household with the father, the politician and lawyer, but he died when she was 25. So this threw her on her own devices. And for a while, she taught in schools and began to find that what she most enjoyed was dealing with these sort of the oldest girls in the class who were beginning to look uh, to the future. And she wanted to inspire in them the kind of uh, confidence and and self-possession and ability to converse and dispute that she had learned through this very kind of rare education from her lawyer father. So um, she kind of uh, brilliantly realized that she could make more money by holding what were, in effect, you know, college-level courses for uh, older teenagers and, and women, even some of them, you know, the wife of the mayor of Boston, um, would come to these conversations, and um, she charged in the end, um, you know, nearly the rate that Ralph Waldo Emerson, her her great friend, was was getting from his lecture series. So, uh, and these were held once a week through what we think of as the academic year, and they began discussing Greek and Roman mythology, um, but ultimately came down to these questions: What is a woman to do? Uh, um, this was after discussing beauty and and um, service and um, all kinds of interesting subjects. But, um, you know, and luckily there are some records of these conversations left, so we can we can almost overhear them talking. And Margaret Fuller, you know, her aim really was to get other people talking, other women talking who uh, had been, you know, too shy to do so. And it's, and it's quite moving to uh, hear initially kind of their tentativeness and, and uh, Fuller's um, desire to get them to think analytically was uh, something that she said. Sometimes she said, well, we're not thinking too clearly about this. I want you to go home and write papers and then come back and discuss this uh, some more, um, which led to some really great pieces on uh, on the, the nature of woman, uh, some of which she published in The Dial, which she was editing, the Transcendentalist uh, Journal, um, she was the first editor there, and again, a remarkable kind of first that she should be uh, chosen by Emerson and others to lead this the mouthpiece of their uh, reform movement. What uh, what you, you talked a bit about this? I wonder if you could expand on that. What what did she see as the role of women? She found it the the in the in the in the culture at the time too constricting. How did she want to expand that? 
Yeah, well, um, she made kind of an argument, um, oh, you might call it a holistic argument, that all people should be able to realize, realize their fundamental talents uh, and capabilities. She argued for a fullness of being, and it wasn't just women that she was cur- concerned about. She, you know, one of these conversations, um, the women began puzzling over, you know, what if a uh, young man wa- wanted to be a poet and, and uh, his parents thought that was not, you know, manly enough, he should be out there in the business world. So, uh, of course, they all decided that this man should be able to be a poet. Um, so it, it kind of went through, for, it, it went for everyone, this radical reform that she was proposing, that we should all uh, be allowed to do, as, as she wrote, we would have every arbitrary barrier thrown down. That went for women as well as for men. But I think that she... Um, particularly saw that uh, women were constrained by too early marriage, by it, often by marriage itself. She was a great critique of, of, of marriage in the ways that it often uh, prevented women from realizing their potential. Um, in fact, one of the uh, most uh, quoted in, you know, sort of pro and con passages of women in the 19th century involved her kind of laying out four different kind of ideal marriages, increasingly more ideal as they went along, um, you know, companionate marriages, a couple that would work together, to, to, you know, towards a, a single aim of, of reform. But in all of those marriages, the woman was an equal partner. And, uh, you know, that was something that she saw missing in all too many of the marriages that her friends had made. Uh, you mentioned is pretty extraordinary that uh, Emerson and others uh, chose her, chose a woman to, to yeah. edit the the uh, the Dial, which is the Journal of the Transcendentalists. Um, tell me a bit about her relationship with Ralph Waldo Emerson's. It was it was pretty complicated relationship. Yes, very much. Uh, uh, you kind of have to imagine Emerson, and maybe it's not so hard to do that from this vantage point because we still know and revere him today. Uh, but you know, he was kind of a a rock star of of, uh, of the day, um, and gave these lectures. People would turn out in, in huge numbers to hear him. And and uh, um, you know, Margaret Fuller, being determined on distinction, you know, was determined to become his friend and managed managed to do that. He was um, let's see, seven years older than she was. He was a married man and and uh, beginning to have children around the time that they met. So you know, she didn't really uh i mean some some people have speculated that she was in love with him perhaps he with her um but i think it was very much a um a meeting of the minds um uh, when she uh died he's you know too young at age 40 he said i've i have lost my audience which some people think is kind of uh you know uh, an unfortunate thing to say, but but she was someone that he could test his ideas on, and she did the same with him. There's a lot of records in their journals of tussling over things. What could marriage be, for example? I mean, it's interesting that he confided in Margaret Fuller his own kind of dire thoughts about marriage, even though he was a married man. He really despaired of a, of a uh, kind of uh, true intimacy with anyone, and I think uh, the frustration that she ultimately felt with him as a friend was not so much uh, that he had trouble with her, Margaret Fuller, but that he had trouble with anyone being 
truly close, and she constantly tested him and challenged him, and, and uh, you know, he enjoyed, he, he described her conversation as the best in America. Uh, she was um, really the one who, who sparked his thoughts, and many of his essays were, uh, that he wrote during the time they were friends, particularly one on friendship, uh, I think were inspired by their conversations. So, uh, you know, he said there was uh, there were scenes in the household when he would prefer to go walking with Margaret Fuller rather than his wife, and uh, the wife, uh, Lydian, burst into tears at the dinner table. Um, but again, you know, everyone wanted a piece of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and uh, uh, he uh, was a kind of isolated um star in the firmament uh, he could confer his attention on you but he wasn't really going to be anybody's close friend and this led to some scrambling and discontent and i think again that's part of why margaret fuller ultimately felt she needed to leave new england in order to really uh, be herself and fulfill her uh, her promise yeah some of the the, the personal touches it's kind of fun to get behind the icon uh i was reminded uh emerson would (laughs) be a little bossy with throw for example you know oh of course well again he was the mentor and throw was even younger still than than margaret fuller who uh, initially accepted some of his poems for publication in the dial but felt his uh, prose was not quite ready yet she recognized in him a kind of rough genius and uh, and knew he would one day do well, but um, you know uh, people were uh, looking out, looking for the new young writer, the new brilliant mind, the new person who could see into this you know universe that after the uh, political revolution had died down and and America was beginning to try to establish itself as a cultural entity. Um, these people in New England were very much trying to put themselves forward as, as, uh, as the first intellectual movement and trying to define that in certain ways. Um, it was hard to get hold of, but uh, which is why I think people have so much trouble defining transcendentalism, the name that we've given to that movement. Um, but it, it had many features, and uh, Thoreau's nature writing and his uh, political activism ultimately was was very much part of it uh i was just going to ask you to define transcendentalism Uh, you've you've said that's a hard thing uh because i think this was the world that these intellectuals lived in so one one thing that bound them together and we uh, we we hear that term but i i I think it's a little amorphous maybe just uh in in brief to define that for us Certainly it is. I mean, I think that uh, there's a kind of um, spiritual or, or uh, philosophical sense to it in which, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the spirit or the oneness of all is, is uh, imminent in nature, it's a kind of pantheism to it. Um, but there was also a, a very much a sense of reforming and reviving and transcending um, what is expected in our daily lives. So just as there were people like Thoreau and Emerson who were wandering in the woods and communing with nature, there were others who were uh, trying to establish new modes of living in utopian communities like Brook Farm, uh, where they might live in a righteous way, uh, 
They might live where male and female were given the same occupations. This was a it's kind of forgotten in a way that Brook Farm, which lasted for about four years um, in West Roxbury, just outside Boston, um, you know, the uh, men and women were going to run this farm, uh, each of them choosing the job that they would do um, in communal labor that would then allow them to uh, study and learn and write um, in their off hours. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne was drawn to this community so that he would be able to support himself as a writer. didn't, in the end, work out for him, but uh, it was a great, um, you know, uh, part of transcendentalism. Bronson Alcott, for example, started his Fruitlands community as part of this, uh, and, and new churches were founded where where uh, there was a much greater freedom of, of uh, religious belief. Uh, it's interesting to think of the Unitarian Church, which these days we kind of think of as uh, as about as radical as a church could be. These transcendentalists, many of them were Unitarian ministers who felt that Unitarianism was too stodgy for them, and they were going to start uh, uh, churches that were in a certain way more like lecture halls um, where uh, people could discuss issues of the day. Theodore Parker became a great uh, you know, abolitionist and speaking his views from the pulpit and, you know, thousands of people turning out. His church was so big or his congregation so big that they had to meet in, in you know, um, uh, music halls. Let's uh, take a, another break. And when we come back, I want to, uh, to move the narrative forward. Uh, you, you've mentioned that at a certain point, uh, Margaret Fuller decided she, she needed to leave Boston. She needed to get out uh, uh, you get the sense there's a yearning in her for more and more experiences, and she'll end up in in, in Europe. We'll we'll talk about that as well. Um, we'll, we'll begin after the break. You write uh, she uh, took at a certain point a rare summer vacation uh, on the western frontier, which at this point was Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and that was a seminal uh, moment in her life. We'll talk about that and yes. and her uh, travels in Europe uh, following this break. UPR is made possible by our members, and UPR is made possible today with a program day sponsorship from Sarah and Charles Salzberg of Hiram in celebration of public education for students with disabilities. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio with music being played in just about every public space possible these days. Why do you rarely hear music in the one place that really needs it, the public restroom? Oh, it's disgusting, but honestly, I really try to avoid restrooms where there are lots of men doing fireworks, you know? A little toilet music, please. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for joining us. We've reached our last segment with Megan Marshall. She is author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Margaret Fuller. It's called Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. Margaret Fuller was Henry David Thoreau's first editor, Ralph Aldo Emerson's close friend, the first female war correspondent, tragic heroine, and uh, much, much more. We are hearing uh, some highlights from her very fascinating life on the program today with uh, with the author, the biographer, Megan Marshall. Uh, so, Megan Marshall, 
a turning point in her life, you you say, is is that summer vacation on the western frontier, which at this point was Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. What? Uh, how did that affect her? Yeah, this was um, uh, a trip that she took from New England before her move to New York. Uh, she'd always wanted to travel in Europe. She thought that was where she would find herself uh, and, you know, uh, be able to live out her fantasies derived from her early childhood reading. Um, but she didn't have the money to do that. Uh, she had missed several opportunities. And here she was given the chance to travel with friends out west to visit a relative who'd settled in Chicago. Uh, so she made up her mind to, to view this almost as if a, it was a grand tour. But, of course, this is a very kind of different place. Um, she felt it was, in the end, uh, just as good as having gone to Europe because what she saw was so so striking. Um, she saw these early days of immigrants from... from uh, uh, Europe settling, uh, you know, across the United States to set up, set up uh, households. But she also saw um, the, the just terrible destruction to the forests uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, she saw how sad it was, uh, really uh, unforgivable, that um, the Native Americans were being moved off their lands. Uh, she made a point of visiting with um, a number of tribes who had gathered on um, at Mackinac Island to uh, receive the annual payments, and she saw just how uh, how changed their lives were, and walked among them, kneeled down and ground corn with the women, showed them how her parasol worked. Uh, she was, you know, beginning to be one of the first what we might call, uh, you know, immersion journalists by really joining in the peoples and the places that she was was visiting. So while she could, in a way, absorb some of this pioneer spirit that she saw in the settlers out there, and she was kind of astonished at these cities or towns that were becoming cities right around her um, in uh, Chicago and Milwaukee. You know, she said if she stayed for another few days, um, she probably would have, you know, the, the town might have grown eight times <laughs> uh, around her uh, in Milwaukee. Um, but uh, she also saw the tragedy of this settlement. And, you know, we think of Thoreau as the great uh, nature writer and, and also a great enthusiast for uh, and, and uh, preservationist of, of Native American ways in his writing. But um, Margaret Fuller really started in on this before he did in the book that she wrote based on this experience in the West called Summer on the Lakes, um, focusing on, of course, the Great Lakes that were uh, you know, central to the establishment of, of this area of the West. Why, why did she feel like she needed to get out of New England? Uh, she, you know, you might have thought, well, this is a stimulating intellectual hotbed. you got the transcendentalists there. Why did she feel she needed to leave? Well, it was a hard decision for her um, because, of course, along with many of the others, Emerson and Thoreau, they kind of did feel they were superior as New Englanders. This was the Athens of America in Boston. But Horace Greeley, who had uh, gone down to New York City and started uh, the New York Tribune, was uh, a big proponent of Margaret Fuller's work. Uh, he started excerpting portions of her writings for the dial in his publication. Uh, he was the one who encouraged her to turn what had been an essay about uh, 
women's rights into the book Women in the 19th Century, and he volunteered to help publish that. And so it was he who invited her to come down and be a front-page columnist for the New York Tribune. He thought she'd be writing about literature and the arts, which had been a big focus for her. But after that trip out west and then uh, being invited by some reform-minded friends to visit the women who were in prison at Sing Sing, mostly as a result of being picked up as prostitutes um, and convicted of that crime, which he thought was an unfair conviction. This was not the woman's crime, it was the man's crime. Uh, She turned this uh, column opportunity into a kind of um, advocacy journalism. She went to visit women in prison. She went to visit mental institutions. She went to visit orphanages. She, uh, She went to all these in places that were just really being formed in New York in the 1840s um, as, uh, you know, intended to help out, but not always doing so. And she wanted her readers to understand what was really going on in these places and to uh, themselves perhaps volunteer and take part in in these reform movements and to understand, as she wrote in Women in the 19th Century, that the uh, the, the prostitute was perhaps had more dignity than the upper-class woman who was um, powdering her face and dressing up just to lure a man to support her in a marriage. How different, really, was that from prostitution? And you can imagine what a shock (laughs) that was for her to write that in 1845. (laughs) Uh, late 1840s, she uh, she goes to Europe. As you mentioned, uh, she'd always wanted to do this. Yes. And good for yeah, her for, for a, doing a it, right? great opportunity. She was uh, going to be writing um, for the Tribune as a foreign correspondent. She also, that didn't pay enough, so she was the governess to uh, a family that was touring, had an interest in reform institutions, too. So they, you know, they went to uh, uh, prisons and schools and, and uh, coal mines in uh, England, uh, as well as meeting Wordsworth and, uh, and Carlyle, that sort of thing. She was, her book, Women in the 19th Century, was so well-known in England that people wanted to meet Margaret Fuller now. So it was really kind of a better trip than she would have made earlier in her life. Um, and it turned out, you know, they arrived there in 18... Uh, 46 and then 1847 she stayed uh that's when she reached um uh uh Rome where she had uh as you mentioned earlier fell in love with a young uh soldier in the civic guard who she met just by chance uh, at a uh in the Vatican at a uh Easter service um and she decided to stay on by herself later she wrote I have lived in a much more full and true way about her time in Europe and particularly in Rome. Um, she said she had met, I think we talked about this earlier too, George Sand in, uh, in uh, France. And there was a woman who, uh, you know, sometimes dressed as a man, a woman who uh, uh, was supporting herself entirely on her writing, who was very unconventional, who, but who took uh, Margaret Fuller into her home as an equal. Uh, I think this kind of experience began to open her up to different ways of living, to uh, ultimately um, having a full uh, romantic and 
sexual experience with uh, Giovanni Assoli, with whom she fell in love in Rome. Uh, this really was, as she said, a, a full and true way to be living her writing, and she became a mother as well. Mm-hmm. This is, and uh, in the end, it was it was seen as scandalous, at least back in, a, in America, right? Before we get there, I want to, to get to her, her death and it, uh, you know, romantic quote-unquote uh, death, uh, a shipwreck. Um, you, you couldn't have made this up, right? If it, when I learned that, that she, that she knew George Sand and I imagine that she admired her and they got to know each other, became friends. Um, it, it, it had to be in a certain way. Yes. Yeah. She was finally really meeting women who were like her. Uh, she hadn't found that so much in the United States. And she was meeting men who were not threatened by her. She met the uh, poet, Polish poet Adam Miskiewicz, who was um, in exile, living in Paris. He was a revolutionary. Um, she met Giuseppe Mazzini, another uh, you know key mind behind the Italian Risorgimento. Uh, he was in exile in London. Uh, these people really uh, spurred her thinking about. Uh, what became the sort of year of revolutions in Europe in 1848. They were just all over the continent. Um, by then, she was settled in Rome, and that was the revolution that she took part in. In a way, you know, we talked about why was my book called A New American Life. Here she was in Rome, but this was what she called her revolution, my revolution uh, that she was part of. She, uh, This was her America, in a sense, um, and how fitting that that the uh, the very place that had sort of established um, democracy or republican life um, and had succumbed to the will of outside uh, governments and to the pope uh, here she was just when there was this popular uprising uh, spurred by men of great intelligence um, many of the of the uh, revolutionaries in Rome were young uh, university students. Um, She became not just the sort of advocate for the new republic in Rome by writing about it for the Tribune, but she also was invited to run one of the hospitals in Rome, uh, the one on the Tiber Island, and uh, helped care for the uh, young men who were wounded in this really terrible siege of Rome, because you know, there was a republic founded, but in pushing out the Pope, they had angered the French, and the French came and laid siege, and pretty soon that initial republic had fallen, and Margaret Fuller was there to see it. Hmm. We just have a, a couple of minutes left, uh, so I, I want to ask you a final question, but just to set this up, you'll have to read this in the book, just a dramatic end to her life. She's with her husband. She's now married, uh, Osoli, and uh, they have their son, and uh, a shipwreck, just some 300 yards from, from, from shore. Um, yes, off Fire uh, Island. Uh, you know, it wasn't the brilliant captain that she had interviewed and decided it would be safe to travel with. He had died of smallpox before they got out of the Mediterranean. So, unfortunately, the man at the helm really uh, didn't know exactly where they were, and a terrible storm came up, and, and uh, they were suddenly foundered on uh, these shoals of off Fire Island, very, uh, very shallow um, coastline there. And, uh, you know, it, if they had thought perhaps they could make it to shore or that they would be rescued, they, were, they could see people gathering on shore and thought they would 
soon be, you know, have have people in lifeboats uh, taking them to shore. But it turned out, uh, very sadly, that the people gathering on shore were these uh, scavengers who were simply waiting for things uh, to drift to shore and, and uh, had no intention of going out there in that storm to rescue anyone. So some people did survive the wreck, but not uh, Margaret Fuller, her husband and son. And uh, uh, a and, terrible and, tragedy. And this really did affect her friends. Uh, Emerson sends Thoreau out to try to recover. Uh, and there was a, a, a manuscript that's lost to, to history, right? In the, in yes, the she had been writing her history of the uh, Roman Republic and its rise and fall, and, and that was lost. Uh, there were there was a journal that survived, and that was really what sparked my interest in this story. Imagine uh, the writer didn't survive, but this journal did, sort of waterlogged and and full of her hopes for the rise of the Roman Republic, and we know now that that was also her hopes for for her family to be, you know, true free Italians. Um, just 30 seconds left. What do you think? It, she was 40 when she died. Uh, so yeah. much potential. What do you think? It's pure speculation. What do you think uh, would have become of her? Well, she was. Uh, it was hoped that she would lead the uh, first um, uh, national convention for women women's rights that was going to be ho- held in October uh, after her arrival uh, in 1850 back in the United States. Um, I like to think that maybe she would have taken hold of that women's movement and made it a broader one so that perhaps we wouldn't be struggling with some of the issues that still plague us today, Uh, that great radical dualism that we would like to see uh, erased so that we could all live and experience our true fullness of being. The uh, biography is called Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. It's a winner of the Pulitzer Prize in uh, 2014 for a biography. Megan Marshall is uh, the author. She is uh, teaches narrative nonfiction and art of archival research in the MFA program at Emerson College. Her website, meganmarshallauthor.com. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great and uh, thanks for listening. A little bit more than six years ago, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill devastated not only the Gulf Coast, but the businesses that depended on it. So everything that we had to offer people was taken away, and so we were essentially put out of business. I'm Kai Rizdal. BP's Make Good Money doesn't go all that far. We'll have that story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street as well, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.